Welcome back, everyone, to the Mr. Quimbets podcast, NFL Divisional Playoffs, College Football Championship Preview. Another big week ahead, and that means another big-time guest. And we're very honored to have a great guest on tonight. He has one of the most popular sports betting podcasts out there called Beating the Book, and he works very closely with the legendary Dr. Bob, and he's also a big Redskins fan, so we've got a little bit of an NFC East rivalry going on in the show tonight. His name's Gil Alexander. Gil, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I hope I'm not a big-time guest. That would not be good. It's on your <laughs> other guests. Well, we only have big-time guests on the Mr. Quinn Betts podcast, but I appreciate you jumping on. This is your first time <laughs> well, on. I know you're uh, you know, you're friends with uh, another friend of the podcast, Chris Andrews, who's been on uh, about a month ago, um, and he was uh, nice enough to do the introduction, so I appreciate that. Well, Chris is a great guy, and if you're rolling with Chris, you're rolling with good people. Well, that's good stuff. I absolutely, totally agree with that. Uh, so, Gil, you know, for the listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with your background uh, and who you are and how you got into sports betting, uh, you know, please feel free to take some time here to uh, give everyone a little bit of an idea of what your experience is. Well, I mean, I do a couple things. One, I host the podcast you mentioned, Beating the Book Podcast, and for years before that, the Betting Dork Podcast. Uh, and, you know, I was a broadcast professional. I was in music radio for many years, but as I got older, I sort of gravitated back towards my childhood days of collecting baseball cards and being fascinated with statistics and just spending countless hours immersed and obsessed with those. And the Beckett price guide was always fascinating to me. And sports betting was something I sort of naturally then graduated to as an adult and did so um, you know, in anonymity for years, starting out like everybody as the squarest of all square betters. This is, you know, decades ago at this point, sort of rearing on pinnacle sports newsletters that they would send out back in those days. They would go under the name of Simon Noble. I'm not sure if Simon Noble was an actual person or if that was just somebody's pen name. Um, um, but that was, you know, a great way to get reared on sports betting and to really learn properly how to bet on sports. So I graduated from actual terrestrial radio to doing a sports betting podcast in 2005 when the advent of podcasting technology came about. I decided, oh, this is interesting. Let me go to Staples. Let me buy a microphone and let me reinvent myself as an honest sports better, someone who actually tells people when they lose, too. And what I found was that I had like four or five listeners the first day, but one was in Australia, one was in Germany, one was in Fort Lauderdale, and I just remember thinking, oh my goodness, wow, what, ha- what do we have here? And so I started the podcast, and did it sort of off and on for a few years, got the attention of a Vegas website in 2010 where I started doing it regularly and now do it at my own, you know, beating the book, which is you know available at all the normal, I, uh, normal podcast uh, outlets and distributors. And also along the way, became successful enough as a better and as an analytical better, basing things on math, that I ended up with Dr. Bob doing baseball as well. So those are the two things that I do primarily now, besides, of course, betting on my own. Good stuff. Excellent. I appreciate the, uh, the background. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, hooking up with Dr. Bob. How did that come about? Uh, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm 
Bob. I certainly hope uh, the listeners know uh, about Dr. Bob. I mean, you know, over the last you know, 20 years or so, but certainly over the, you know, more, you know, coming out of the shadows more, I guess, over the last 10 or 15 years, uh, you know, he was kind of, uh, you know, very revolutionary in his approach to uh, betting using his math models and his, uh, his metrics. Um, was it just a seamless uh, relationship because you brought some of those Sabre metrics and, and, uh, and uh, analytical uh, math models to the table as well? Uh, how did you two get together? Yeah, you know, that's a pretty good way of describing it. I was doing my podcast, and in 2011, I want to say, <clears throat> excuse me, I was doing a college football preview show. And I remember thinking to myself, well, you know, I know of Dr. Bob. Anyone who has been in sports betting and who does things through analytics certainly knows of Dr. Bob. He was legendary. I think 2005, he was just a monster in college football. And I think in sports across the board, and he was definitely a pioneer. And so I emailed him. Turned out that he lived very close to me in San Francisco, and to sort of suss me out, we went out to lunch, and we found very quickly, you know, three hours later, <laughs> that uh, we had a lot of common characteristics, uh, even sort of some common stories from our childhood that were pretty interesting. Anyway, it came on the show. The show was about an hour and a half. We had a great time on the show, and then we just sort of became friends over the next year. And I was the original, not the original, but the incarnation of my podcast at the time was at a Vegas website. I did not sell baseball picks in the manner in which they desired, meaning that I was unwilling to tout them in a way that I didn't feel was honest or right. And they, we just sort of came to an agreement. I'm sugarcoating it a little. We came to an agreement that I would no longer sell pits there. And Bob, upon hearing that, sort of the next day was like, you should sell pits with me. He had never asked anybody to sell pits on his site before. And I was only interested in doing baseball. It's the only thing that you know, really, you know, with the podcast, I can sort of do simultaneously. I can't, I can't analyze sports year-round with the podcast. And that's how I ended up with Bob. But it was really a natural thing where he was on my show. We sort of hit it off. And then for, you know, a full year after that, I never in a million years ever thought that I would work professionally with Bob. And what an honor to be the first person to be asked to uh, be an analyst on his site besides him. And he's got a few guys there now, but to be the first is quite an honor, and I'm proud to be associated with him. Because other, I'll tell you, it's an industry, as I'm sure you know, that is a largely seedy one, that of selling picks. And I think there's a couple pillars in that industry that are really not about that at all, and Bob is one of those. And... So I'm proud to be associated with him, and um, that's how it worked out. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it certainly speaks volumes to, uh, you know, I think your approach and uh, obviously a lot of similarities between you and Bob in terms of the way you uh, view, uh, you know, the analytics and the sabermetrics. So, uh, no, I totally agree. It's definitely an honor for sure. And, um, you know, I, I 
you know, being around this thing for 10 plus years, I mean, I have the utmost respect for Bob uh, because he is, uh, you know, like you said, one of those pillars that uh, kind of stands above the rest in terms of, um, you know, honesty and transparency and, uh, you know, providing a, a quality product over the long term. So I couldn't say enough good things about Bob. Uh, Miguel, how would you say your approach over the years has changed uh, to handicapping. I mean, anyone who's done this as long as you and I have, you know, you're always tweaking things both in season and out of season. But how would you say from, you know, from year one through today, have you changed your approach um, either from a situational standpoint or from a metrics and mathematical standpoint? Well, year one, I mean, if we're talking about when I was a young lad, I mean, there's no question that, I was doing things like any first-time better was doing. You think you know sports? Oh, I can bet into this. I can make money. Well, you find out very quickly that just because you think you know sports doesn't mean you can earn money betting sports. And so in those days, I was sort of doing it by feel entirely and making all the mistakes. By the way, anybody who tells you that they didn't make those mistakes at the beginning they're odd, they're either the greatest or the smartest human being who's ever lived or they're lying to. Right? So it, it really <laughs> so is true, a common, so true. Yeah, it's a really common trait. But you know, I was fascinated by the puzzle that was born and viewed it as this, you know, wild sort of activity for entertainment. I wanted to sort of solve it and became pretty obsessed and decided, well, you know, I got to look at things differently. And I read Moneyball, and I got one of the He viewed it, well, he did courses about the Oakland A's finding inefficiencies in baseball player acquisition work. Uh, he sort of translated it into doing football analytics. I read that book. I thought to myself, all of these principles can be applied to betting sports. Where are the inefficiencies? What are people saying? What really matters? Um, where can you find value that others do not find value? And that's how I started really down the path of reading things by the numbers in my approach to betting baseball. Now, here's the thing. When you say that you do that, immediately there's something about human beings were like, oh, well, he just does things like that. Like, he doesn't, it's 100% that's what he does. And no, that, that's not it. I do feel like if you don't base things in the numbers, you're probably doing it wrong, meaning betting on sports. So I think you do have to have a foundation with modeling and with stats. But I think of folks who are just doing that sacredly, that they're just as wrong. I think you have to watch the games. I think you have to be aware. The NFL is the greatest example of this. I think you have to be aware of the market and how the public perception matters in markets. The NFL is particularly, um, you know, it's particularly true of the NFL in that regard. But within my, you know, I didn't just then decide, okay, I'm doing it by the numbers and that was ecstatic. I've had great years in baseball, but in 2013, I had a terrible year. And I had to adjust. I had, I, I had to look at myself and say, well, why did that happen? And I could run by a litany of horrifically bad beat results I had in 2013. 2013, in terms of 
I can give you in-game win expectancy. Dr. Bob's site still. I could give you 10 of those games right off the top that I had no business losing. 98, 99% in-game win expectancy that I ended up losing. But even still, I had to look at myself and I said, okay, it happened. What can I do to avoid that ever happening again? And for me, the simplest answer in baseball was maybe things have become so volatile that I really have to look at five-inning lines more than I used to. Now, that's a very simplistic answer to the question, but yes, I'm constantly adjusting. I'm constantly evaluating my performance. And I think that's something that a lot of betters, 98% of betters, don't do. They don't look at themselves and their performance. They don't track their performance, first of all. And then in doing so, they don't think to themselves, why is this happening? What am I not doing right? And so I think... You know, somewhere in that babble is the answer to your question. I'm constantly evolving, and um, I think you have to, to be a good better. You have to be honest with yourself, and you have to evolve. You're not going to know everything at all times, and if you're staying in place, you're going backwards. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you make a great point about, uh, you know, having a 360 approach to sports betting where it's got to be the numbers, the situations, the market, the matchups. You know, other, you know, other information that might not be factored in the number. Um, and that's something I think that's lost on a lot of people. Uh, the second thing I think that I, you made a great point about, and it's also lost on people, is the fact that you're right. Most people either don't track their bets or if they do, they're not taking the time to learn from them. There's something to be learned from every wager that you make, either a win or a loss. And, you know, guys like Gil and I take the time and how you hone your craft over time and how you improve uh, each each day, each week, each year, each season, is to evaluate um, you know what has gone right and what has gone wrong with with each wager. There have been wagers, and everyone has come across this. You win a wager, but you probably didn't really deserve to win the wager, right? You were you were kind of on the wrong side, but you found a way to get the W. So there's something to be learned from that, right? So you got to delve back into that game and figure out, you know, well, what can I tweak and make better for the next time? And there's other games that you lose, as Gil alluded to a moment ago, you know, just awful beats. You were on the right side, as people like to say, and for whatever reason, just things didn't break your way. And I will say, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, finish up. Go ahead. No, I, you know, I will say that the other offshoot of what you're talking about there is that folks say, well, those things will even out. Well, I have a little bit of a different thing for that. I don't necessarily, I think if you're a really successful better, I think if you're a really good better, you actually should not expect those things to even out. You should actually expect to have more of those things going against you than go for you. That said, you should always be honest about it, though. Yes, absolutely. There are going to be times when you don't deserve to win when you do win. Uh, and you've got to be, that, that's got to be an instructive um thing as well for you you have to be honest in both ways and and learn from each side of those for sure i totally agreed absolutely and you know a buddy of mine uh has a a great saying he said you know a third of the season is going to be a hot run a third of the season is going to be a cold run and then where the the decision point is right the tipping point of the season is going to be in that in that last third and how you perform in that last third and that's going to be you know the determinant of do you have a losing year, a good year, or a great year? And, you know, if you're catching a lot of bad beats uh, or, you know, 
or things just, you know, just aren't breaking your way, then you're probably going to be on the lower end of that spectrum. But, um, you know, I think there's definitely lessons to be learned on each wager that you make. And it's imperative that you go back both in season and out of season to review those wagers. I mean, part of what I do in the off season, cause I, I cap, uh, NFL college football and college basketball is I spend my spring and summer, not only prepping for the next season about, you know, learning the teams, this, that, but also going back and reviewing what happened last season and thinking about it, you know, because I keep tons of notes on each game I, I wager on, trying to determine, well, why did I make this wager when I did? And how did it turn out? And what can I learn from it? And I think that's something that if you're trying to really hone your craft and take this seriously and run it like a business, run it like an investment, those are the little things that make a big difference over the long haul. And the long haul is really the key, right? I mean, Gil, I don't need to tell you. I mean, it's not about uh, one day or one weekend or one month. It's over the course of multiple seasons, improving and always looking at your long-term results. Yeah, I would agree completely. And I'll tell you how many folks I know who have been betting for a very, very, very long time who never learn any of that. Never learn any of that. They make the same mistakes they made 10, 15 years ago just because of what we're talking about. They don't review their own work. They're not introspective about it. They're not analyzing what they've done. And, yeah, it's about the long haul, but so many people don't think that way. And betting is an emotional thing for most folks, too. And the less of that you have, the better off you are. Totally agree. That's something I've preached a long time on Twitter on the podcast about staying emotionless, uh, through, you know, even when you're winning, it, it, you can get a little crazy, you get very undisciplined, you don't exercise proper money management, and you're right back to where you started. And it goes the same way when you're on a cold streak. You know, when you get on a cold streak, you got to tighten up the volume a little bit. You got to look a little bit deeper into the games. And, uh, you know, and then you kind of got to ride the storm out, so to speak. Uh, change topics a little bit here, Gil. Uh, you know, obviously, as we've established, uh, you know, your bread and butter is baseball. Why you walk the listeners through a little bit, without giving away, obviously, the secret sauce, but walk them through a little bit about um, how you prepare each day. Like, uh, you know, how is your day spent in terms of, uh, you know, the time it takes you to handicap, uh, you know, a, a baseball slate, you know, say on like a Wednesday or something like that. But just let people understand what a professional better goes through to arrive at those wagers. I mean, it's very easy to see the end result that's posted on Dr. Bob's website uh, or, you know, the ticket that you're holding or, you know, the, the posting that you have, um, uh, you know, on, on, the, on the website for... Uh, uh, your book, but there's a lot of work that goes into that, to, you know, to clicking that button and making that decision. So why don't you walk everybody through what like a, almost like a typical day of handicapping looks like for Gil Alexander? Yeah, in-season baseball, ultimate grind. It is not for everyone, and I'll be the first person to admit that. It's seven months if you include the playoff month, but typically, you know, really it's six months of every single night with no break except for the four days of the all-star break, you have got to be the ultimate in terms of self-discipline. And so every day is about, well, I mean, I'll start. It depends where you want to start. Let's say we'll start with four o'clock Pacific when the games are actually being played. I will watch baseball every single day. A lot of handicappers, uh, some that I know and respect, sort of wear it as a badge of honor when they say they don't watch the games. And I am simply not wired that way. I cannot 
not watch the games. I feel as though I learn from watching the games. I feel as though there are things that I can see that defy the numbers. The greatest example I like to give is Cliff Lee a few years ago. It's sort of the one that always leads to mind. Cliff Lee had this unbelievable strikeout to base on ball ratio. I believe when he was pitching for the Texas Rangers, I want to say. And in watching Cliff Lee, I could tell that he had almost become enamored by this amazing strikeout to walk ratio and that he was almost grooving balls as a result of that. I couldn't have learned that from the numbers on the page. I had to watch baseball to figure that out, and that, of course, translated to great value bets at some point that season against Cliff Lee, where you were getting big dog money. So I watch baseball. Uh, I had tried, admittedly, to cut back on some of it because I was watching so much in past seasons that I was on my deathbed. So I watch baseball and will watch to, you know, as a rule, the end of my action that night. That's another thing that five-inning wagers has helped me with. There's a, lot of, there's a lot less late West Coast games, so there's a lot fewer times, many, you know, it's, a, it's fewer times now that I have to be up to the, you know, end of the night watching a West Coast game. It happens, but not nearly as much as it used to. And once that's done, once I've sort of my action is done for the night, if there's no other game I want to take a look at, I will go back to my room. I spend most of the baseball season in Las Vegas. I'll go right to my room. Other casino games do not interest me. The other pitfalls of Las Vegas do not interest me. It's just sort of how I'm wired. I'm very disciplined. I'll go back to my room, and I will delve into the games from the following day. And if it's a 15-game slate, that's about a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour endeavor for me. And, you know, I've gotten better at being able to get off a game quicker, I would say. I know what to look for. I mean, it's very mechanical on the one hand, right? Of the model, I can you know, compare that to the line, and if I have an edge, I play it. If I have a bigger edge, I play more. You know, there's, there's a mechanical element to it. But there is a checks and balances that I have as well. I'm not going to just go by the gospel. I will go rogue on my model. And that works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people, you know, follow theirs by, by you know, just sacredly, and others don't at all. They wake up in the morning, they throw darts at a board, and they pick whatever teams they want to. Uh, but that's not how I do it. It's sort of a combination for me. And I'll stay up baseball season. I'll stay up till 2 in the morning easily, you know, every baseball night. It's a terrible, terrible schedule for your health. I'll wake up in the morning. I have to send out, and when I say wake up in the morning, a few hours later, I have to send out an email at 8 a.m. Pacific to my clients. Here are my picks. Um and so that's kind of the grind of it. Sometimes there's day games. I'll immediately start watching baseball again. Other times when they're not, I'll try to perhaps get back to sleep. But 
you know, it's it's that kind of grind, and there's line movement during the day. You got to keep abreast of lineup changes, and you know, it's it's it just the only thing is, no matter what you do in life, no matter how much you love it, I love being baseball. Don't get me wrong, I love doing my podcast, but you want a day off once in a while just for <laughs> human beings. And during baseball season, you just can't get that. So you have really got to want it. And I love it. I love it as a problem-solving, as a puzzle-solving endeavor. Um, you know, I don't know if I can do this 10 years from now because it's a lot, the baseball side of things, that is. But for now, um, it's the greatest thing for me. I love it, and I embrace it. I couldn't agree more, Gil. I mean, that's the same approach that I have as well. I mean, you really have to have a passion and a love for this uh, to be able to be successful at it. And as I mentioned before, and as I mentioned, you know, numerous times uh, on Twitter, on the podcast as well, about running it like a business, running it like an investment, and you really got to be passionate about it because it is uh, definitely a grind, without a doubt about it. Uh, if you're doing baseball, if you're doing football, if you're doing basketball, all of it is a grind if you're really taking it seriously. Um, you know, I, I, can spe- I can't speak specifically to betting baseball, but the closest thing that I do that uh, that's comparable to baseball would be college basketball. And, you know, that's an every night thing for a few months. And, you know, I, I find myself uh, working days ahead where I'm looking at matchups two or three days ahead. Um, and, you know, Gil, as you mentioned about, you know, working at night on the next day's games and getting your wagers together early, I, it's a similar approach to why I use as well. But I find that um, in college hoops, if I'm working – two or three days ahead and seeing situations and spots beforehand, knowing that, okay, well, if so-and-so, if certain uh, result happens on Tuesday and then they have a game on Thursday or Saturday, then I know kind of what spot or situation I'm going to lean towards. And then obviously you got to worry about the numbers and, and the spread and, and where everything else falls in line. But at least I'm starting to formulate, um, you know, a small group of games that I'm, you know, kind of circling. And that way when the numbers do come out two or three days later down the road, I already have a lot of my work done. Because uh, I find that's really the only way to stay on top of it. Um, now, with baseball, it's a little bit more unique because, like you said, you've got lineup changes. Uh, you've got all sorts of weird things that can happen in baseball. Um, so, you know, it is there's an added level of complexity uh, to, to the baseball handicapping for sure. But I appreciate you walking us through your approach uh, and kind of what a, a day in the life of Gil Alexander looks like in the middle of uh, July. Um you mentioned. Uh, let, me add, let me add this too, by the way, about Bob. You'll appreciate this because you do college basketball. Bob does, Dr. Bob, that is, he does college football, pro basketball, and college basketball. And, you know, again, the tout industry gets this horrible name, and justifiably so, by the way. 98% right on. Problem is that people throw the other 2% under the bus. And I will tell you about a guy like Bob. Nobody works harder in any industry in the world. I've never observed anyone who works as hard as a guy like him. And it is an all-night affair. College basketball, I'll go to a convention with him. I won't see him. Well, I can't come to dinner. I gotta, I'm in my room. I'm doing college basketball. You know, because there's 340-plus D1 schools, right? So, you know, that's the other thing that sort of is amusing is there's this um, – Again, justifiable anti-tout culture, but people make the mistake of throwing everybody under the same umbrella. And I can assure you there are 
good people who are doing really honest, good work, who are the most disciplined human beings you will ever find. And so I just want to throw that out there. College basketball with all those teams, college football with 100-plus D1 schools, I mean, man, that's unbelievable to me. It adds up for sure, no doubt about it. And uh, I think you made a lot of good points about, you know, the – the few and uh, you know the few good ones that are out there in terms of uh, being not just long-term winners, but also being very transparent and honest about their performance. Uh, and unfortunately, like you alluded to, um, that's not necessarily the case for a vast majority of, of the industry, for sure. Uh, you yeah. had mentioned at the top of the uh, podcast that um, you know, and it was a very fair point, and I couldn't agree with you more about you know, day one you get into sports betting, and everyone you know. Ed, if you're telling the truth, everyone's, you know, kind of in the same boat and they all make the same mistakes and you're very square in the beginning. And it obviously takes time to formulate your approach and learn about the market and learn about how to truly handicap properly. I mean, even uh, Billy Walters was not, it wasn't, you know, a born um, amazing sports better. Uh, you know, he went through a lot of ups and downs, ups and downs in his life as well. So if you could go back now to, Gil Alexander, day one of sports betting. What would be, you know, knowing what you know now, what would be the uh, the one or two bits of advice that you would provide uh, the young Gil and, quite frankly, you know, I, I, any of these listeners out there that are kind of novices, just trying to get their feet wet in the game, trying to learn from people like you and I, um, what would you go back and, and tell yourself? Well, two things. One, shop. Get the best number. It matters. Um you know, you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. People will just, oh, I like this team, I'm grabbing this. Oh, well, you just got a number that's awful. Like, if you had just gone to this book, you would have gotten this number. And that's such a simple point, but it just is so important. It's, you know, it's amazing to me that people will shop for the better orange at a grocery store, but when it's a lot of their money involved on a sports bet, a lot of times they just don't even seem to take the extra two seconds to, to find a better number. It, it's fascinating. So shop around. I mean, absolutely shop around, for God's sake. The other thing is understand variance. And we sort of alluded to it earlier. That stuff's going to happen. It's gambling, after all. But understand variance. Understand that you can be um, right about your approach, but that you just happened to hit a basketball game where the team you backed, who was a great three-point shooting team, happened to have a night where they were two for 19 from three. I'm just making up a number, right? Understand that. Understand it in reverse, too. Understand when you got lucky. Understand that you can only control so much and that, again, a good sports better in 11-10 big sports needs to hit 52.4%. 52.4%. That sounds like, now if you tell the average better, hey, I hit 54% of my bets in basketball this year, they'll be at 54%. In knee-jerk reaction, most betters, I can do that. Really, can you? Spot, uh, spot on, Gil, absolutely. That, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I encounter either on Twitter or just in real life that, you know, have this these delusions of grandeur that 80, 90% is like a realistic, or even like 70% is like a realistic long-term winning percentage. And it just yeah. simply is not. I try to explain to people, I'm going to lose 45 out of 100 wagers. So I don't ever get worried if I lose 10 games straight, which has happened, which, quite frankly, I'm in the middle of a cold run right now in college hoops. Um, I, it doesn't bother me because 
it's not about those 10 or 15 wagers. It's about the 500 wagers or a thousand wagers. I mean, it's, you know, it's over the course of a season or multiple seasons. I mean, it's to get caught up in a bad week or, uh, you know, it just, they, they just don't understand the concept that the best sports bettors in the world are going to lose 45 out of a hundred times. And that's just a simple fact of the matter. And if you're doing that, if you're losing 45 out of a hundred, you're doing damn good. And people just don't yeah. understand that concept. And, and, you know, make a great point that, you know, people say, oh, well, I could I could do that. Well, good luck to you. You could probably do it for a day or a week or maybe you get hot for a month. But prove to me that you can do it over the course of many years. You know, show me that you can mm-hmm. document it. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and a lot of people just it, it, that that concept is lost on them. And uh, it's hard to educate them. Um you know, and that's part of why I started this podcast two years ago uh, and why I've been on Twitter the last couple of years. You know, I'm trying to help and educate people because I realized there's so much misinformation out there and people just don't understand how this business really works at its, at its core. And, you know, I just it drives me crazy when I hear people like, you know, say the things, you know, about the 70 and 80 percent. And it's just I, I don't understand why, you know, how they even thought that it was even feasible. But then you talk to more and more people and you realize that's the general consensus out there, that most people just think this is real easy. And like you said earlier, Gil, oh, I know a lot about sports. All right, I'll start betting. And it's a completely different animal. You know, knowing a lot about statistics or knowing a lot about players and stuff, yeah, that helps you to a certain point. But the reality is betting and handicapping is so unique that a lot of the things that, you know, people that might be very knowledgeable about sports, I mean, even take the guys, you know, in the newspapers or on TV, they're awful at handicapping. I mean, those idiots on ESPN are terrible. And, and, they, and they're being paid a lot of money to talk about sports all day. But just because you know a lot about sports doesn't mean that transcends into being able to actually handicap a game and pick winners over the long term. Well, I would even argue that the you know, mainstream media types help our cause because they will absolutely create narratives that are oftentimes false entirely. Absolutely and true. Oh, so true. That will help <laughs> that will help us in, in sort of exploiting lines. So yeah, I mean if anything it's it helps us. So true, especially in the 24-hour uh, or 24-7 uh, uh, news cycle nowadays. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are stories and, and, uh, out there that are just, they're just very misleading to, to the truth and the reality of what's really going to impact the game. And it's really just to be able to fill uh, airtime. Um, so uh, before we jump into the, uh, the college and the NFL slates, uh, real quickly, Gil, uh, just a, a couple notes from you. I'd like to hear about your thoughts on some of the, uh, the off-season baseball moves. Um, you know, obviously the Padres and the Cubs seem to be at the top of everyone's list for making a lot of big uh, acquisitions this off-season. But what are your thoughts just very quickly in general about what you've seen over the last uh, two or three months since uh, the end of the World Series? One of the things that I make a point deal of this year after the baseball season is over and a great 2014 season, I purposely walk away from baseball till the next year, till January of the following year. I need a break from baseball or else I will die on the spot. Like, I just absolutely get away from it because of not just month, but a six, seven month grind every night. You just have to sort of pull away from it. Now, that's not to say I haven't kept an eye on the 
winter meetings and free agency and trades. And I guess my sort of reaction here, you know, in early January is, yeah, I mean, absolutely, Cubs, Padres has been great. I think it's more noteworthy to think about who hasn't made moves yet also. And I'm in the Bay Area right now, and I think the Giants and A's leap to mind. The Giants, who have won three World Series in the last five seasons now, they lost out on John Lester, and they're you know, the hero, their love, Pablo Sandoval, leaves town to go play for the Red Sox. And they got Casey McGahey to ostensibly replace him. But it's one of those teams that hasn't done much. They lost out again on the big prize. And it's sort of like the three World Series championships in five years allow Giants fans to almost be like, yeah, we'll figure it out. We're awesome. Even if we don't win a World Series this year, we may win it next year. You know, that kind of thing. Sort of this interesting complacency that exists here. So I don't think the Giants have done much. I think the A's, I mean, look, I'm the last person to say anything better. And no one could ever knock Billy. However, I kind of think they are at the point now, and this started with the Cessna's trade, and now with an off season of just purging players, just absolutely purging that roster, they may go into the season with the worst seven and you'll ever see in China. And I almost want to say that this might be a lost year for the Oakland days. And that's tough to say about a guy like Billy Bean. He always figures it out, right? But I don't know. This may be the this may be the one time where Billy Bean has sort of bitten off more than you or maybe this is all part of a master plan because like the Giants who you're like, well, figure it out. I mean, they're another world series, you know. With Billy Bean, you know he's gonna right the ship at some point. It's not a question of the A's going in the tank for years, but it may be a one year thing here for the A's. If that roster has been sort of turned over. And the other team that I would bring up is, you know, the other World Series team, the Royals. You know, the Royals were really a lightning in a bottle team. Their postseason run was storybook until they ran into the postseason juggernaut that is the Giants. But up until then, uh, and specifically Madison Bumgarner, up until then, I mean, it was storybook. The Royals were just amazing. But you look at what they've done since Madison Bumgarner threw that last pitch, and you sort of scratch your head and you're like, well... Maybe that was a serious lightning in the bottle moment because I don't see how this team is certainly not better, and I don't know how they're going to be as good. You know, James Sheehan's gone, Aoki gone, Billy Butler can be argued not as you know not certainly not a multi-dimensional ball player, but he's gone, and you really wonder with this club. I don't know if they're going to be quite as good with what they're going to field come April. Um, so the Royals are another team where I sort of look at them and I'm like, ah, this, they, they worry me a little here. Now, again, it's January. Much can change. You know, Baltimore Orioles, the team that I grew up on, they haven't done anything either, and they've just lost, you know, really good players. They lost Andrew Miller out of the bullpen. They lost Nelson Cruz. Yet they did this last year where they sort of just waited till the end and then, oh, hey, well, we found Nelson Cruz. Well, I don't know that that's going to happen this year. You know, I don't know that they're going to be that lucky. And losing Miller is huge. 
in addition to losing Cruz. But by the way, you notice I'm not even mentioning losing Marquecas because I don't think that's nearly as important. But those are, I guess that's four teams that I mentioned that I'm, I'm sort of shaking my head at. And I'm like, oh, so far, not so good. Good stuff, Gil. I appreciate the insight. And I know uh, some of the baseball junkies that, I, uh, that are listeners are definitely appreciative of uh, you know us injecting a little bit of uh, – baseball information here on what's typically a, a football-driven podcast, but thank you again. So without further ado, let's get into the college and the NFL slates. As you guys know, we're recording this on Wednesday night, so a lot of information can come in between now and kickoff, uh, but this is where we stand at this moment. Gil, let's start with the big one on Monday night on the college side, Ohio State versus Oregon. Right now, Oregon somewhere between a six or six-and-a-half point favorite after opening at seven. Um, as Everyone that follows me on Twitter knows that I'm sitting on a 40 to one ticket with Ohio state from back in August that I posted for everybody. And I know a lot of guys tailed that. So we're definitely sitting pretty. And, uh, I tweeted out, um, uh, some hedging strategies last night that uh, people should consider if they are looking to hedge at all. So I'm a little biased in this game, Gil. So I'll let you take the reins uh, at first in terms of, uh, you know, your thoughts and break down the game. And I'll interject with a few things at the end. Well, good for you with the 40 to 1 ticket. Are you hedging, by the way? Uh, to be determined, quite frankly. I'm, I'm still mulling it over. So, uh, And luckily, I've still got yeah. a couple more days, and, and I think uh, that Oregon money line is going to uh, tick down another, uh, to hopefully, 10, 15, or 20 cents. So um, that'll give me a little bit more, uh, I guess, emphasis potentially to, to hedge off a little bit. But we'll see. But I, I think. It would be somewhat foolish not to hedge a little bit and come away empty-handed. Uh, I mean, even if I do hedge, I'll still stay very heavy on Ohio State. Um, but uh, it should be a great one on Monday night. Yeah, well, I, have, I mean, I have philosophies on hedging, too. Like, uh, we talk about misinformation that gets put out there in sports betting. Um, I think a lot of people just hedge because they've been led to believe you should always hedge. And sometimes I sort of scratch my head at that. I'm like, well, you shouldn't always hedge. Um, in fact, I can give you a few reasons why, you, you know, one shouldn't hedge in certain circumstances. And I don't know the specifics of, of how much you've got going, but I like Ohio State here against the number, at least. Um, you know, I have not only Ohio State at plus seven, I actually have a um, max bet early at plus seven and a half, so I wasn't allowed to bet a lot on it. But I have them at plus seven and a half for a small amount as well. I sort of have the same analysis of this game that I did before the Florida State-Oregon game, which is, you know, in handicapping Florida State-Oregon, which I was dead wrong about, by the way. You were on the Seminoles, My too. play on Florida State had to do with the fact that, yeah, I was on the Seminoles. Yeah, so One of my, you know, the big thing that I, <laughs> well, here's the thing, and I don't know how you feel about that bet now, but one of the things that I stand by is, Oregon, obviously going into it, they have this amazing mismatch with team speed. But Florida State, had Dalvin Cook been able to not fumble the football, let's start there, and they've been able to establish their physical dominance over Oregon, you know, again, turnovers masked a whole bunch. And in that game, it just became a turnover fest in the second half. So what looks, you know, it's a blowout, and that game just gets away from you. If you're going to turn over, there's, there's no handicapping that's going to overcome that. But I sort of look at Ohio State in not a dissimilar way. 
as great of a speed advantage as Oregon will have here. I look at Cardale Jones, and I sort of am saying to myself, how exactly is Oregon going to stop him again? I don't really see that happening. And I think you may see a mass exodus of quarterbacks from Ohio State with this kid. He is unbelievable to me. He is huge. He's got a rocket arm. And I look at the Alabama game, and I think to myself, well, they're not going to be intimidated by anybody else, that's for sure. And so just as big an advantage as Oregon has in terms of speed, I think Ohio State with Cardio Jones, they've got an interesting advantage there on offense. So you're giving me seven points. I know it's less now, but at the time, you're giving me seven or seven and a half. I'm all over Ohio State. I like that. I couldn't agree more, Gil. I mean, regarding the uh, Florida State-Oregon game, I don't think that was a bad play. I mean, people forget that it was, what, 18-13 or 18-12 at halftime? I mean, people forget that that was a ball game. And quite frankly, Florida State should have been winning at halftime. I mean, you know, right. they, they, they didn't convert on the fourth day. I mean, they, they missed multiple opportunities inside the 5 and 10 in the first half. So there's, you know, the one uh, big uh, strike against them, right? And then on that, that initial drive in the second half, as you alluded to, they were going in. If he doesn't fumble there and they get a touchdown on that drive, man, I mean, the complete complexity of the game changes immediately. So I was watching. You know, I was watching that game with a bunch of Oregon backers, and it's amazing. You know, again, we talked earlier about how you view your bets. It's amazing how differently one person on who's backing one team and the other person in another can view a game, and so they're convinced. You know, oh my God, you're so wrong about this game. And I sort of said, Well, yeah, the outcome was wrong, but. Yeah, I didn't see it that way. You know, I was like, yeah, no, I actually think I'd make that. Now, maybe I'm being stupid. Who knows? But I actually think I'd make that same bet again. So, I mean, look, projecting forward to this one, I like Ohio State getting the points. I really do. I agree. I think they match up very well. Uh, you know, coaching-wise, to me, this is an enormous mismatch. Um, and that is driving a lot of why, even forget about the fact that I've got this this future out there. I like Ohio State a lot in this game because Meyer's been there before. The guy's just flat-out a winner. I mean, everywhere he goes, the guy just flat-out wins, and you can't take that away from him. Um, and he's done it at multiple stops. He's done it with different types of quarterbacks and different types of systems, and the guy just continues to win. Um, I think that, uh, you know, you made a great point about Jones. I mean, the guy can definitely play. I was never concerned. I had Ohio State very heavy in the Big Ten title game because my thought was very simple. The third-string quarterback at Ohio State is still better than 99% of the other quarterbacks in the country. And the guy did, certainly did not prove me wrong then, and he didn't prove me wrong against Alabama uh, on a big move that I had uh, on New Year's Day. Um, I think they match up very well with Oregon. People forget that because Meyer is there now, he has brought a different recruiting element to that school and to the Big Ten in general, and he's been able to recruit faster players. So, you know, when Trestle was there and, you know, Ohio State played Florida, uh, you know, years back, that was kind of like the first year where people were like, wow, the SEC speed, right? I, if I remember correctly, the Gators were like a seven-point dog in that game. I think they returned right. the opening kickoff back for a touchdown, and they ran away with that game. And that I remember from that point going forward, everyone was like, wow, the SEC, they're, they're just so much faster than everyone else. No one can keep up with them. Big Ten's so slow and bulky, and you know everyone just kind of grinds out running game. But now, with Meyer there, 
he's not only does he bring a different philosophy, but because he's got roots in the SEC, the players are starting to follow. And so I don't think there's that big of a discrepancy. And obviously, and then to kind of transition a little bit, Oregon kind of brings some of that SEC speed, right? So they're kind of like the West Coast version of the SEC. Um or the traditional sense of the SEC. So I don't think there's that big of a speed discrepancy, similar to the way I felt against Florida State, where I thought Florida State's speed on defense could actually slow down Oregon a little bit, which was the case in the first half. Because in my mind, from the middle of the third quarter on, you just throw out the rest of that game. Because as you alluded to, Gil, you got so many turnovers. Uh, there's just nothing oh. you can do about handicapping that. But if you look... Um, at the first 35 minutes of that game or first 40 minutes of the game, Florida State very easily could have won that game outright. Um, so to transition now to the, to the title game, I don't think there's that big of a... Uh